ribs, roasted chicken, and flame-broiled burgers in town. Always available for dine-in or take-out. For good food, good service, and good friends, it's the Quarterback Club in Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cyber Security Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. You may recall uh, last week we had Professor Tun Mint, the chair of the political science department at Carleton College, on our show. Uh, he mentioned a faculty panel that will be coming up on Thursday evening of October 27th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. in Hassenstab Hall. Uh, that is autocracy versus democracy, threats to democracy in Myanmar, Ukraine, and the United States with a panel of uh, professors from the political science department. Public is invited, so put that on your calendar, October 27th, 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Hassenstab Hall on the Carleton campus. Uh, we're going to continue our series on the U.S. intelligence community today. Uh, this series is designed to help us to learn how the U.S. intelligence community is organized, what missions are carried out in support of American national security, and how member organizations of the U.S. intelligence community are aligned to support the president and other policymakers as they protect American national security interests. Uh, today we'll be discussing the National Security Agency, and our guest is John Darby. John Darby recently retired from the National Security Agency. His final assignment was as the Director of Operations for all of NSA. Serving in that role for over four years, John was responsible for all U.S. signals intelligence operations. A native, native of Billings, Montana, John Darby graduated from Carleton College right here in Northfield, Minnesota in 1983 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and International Relations and a concentration in Russian Studies. Shortly after graduating from Carleton College, Mr. Darby began work at NSA where he was assigned as a Russia language analyst. He served in a variety of field and operations management positions at NSA headquarters in Fort Meade, Maryland and abroad throughout his career. Following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, he spent over a decade leading NSA's counterterrorism and counterproliferation missions. Other key senior leadership assignments include serving as NSA's Chief of SIGINT Analysis and the Deputy Chief of Cybersecurity Operations. During the course of his service, he also studied the Polish and Hungarian languages at the State Department's Foreign Service Institute. He attended various graduate-level courses as part of the Defense Leadership and Management Program, and he's a graduate of the Kellogg School of Management Executive Leadership Program. John Darby was awarded two Presidential Meritorious Executive Awards, two NSA Director's Distinguished Service Medals, the NSA Exceptional Civilian Service Award, and the CIA's George W. Bush Medal for Excellence in Counterterrorism. John Darby, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what brings you to town, to Carleton, this week? Well, actually, it's kind of an exciting weekend. Uh, this weekend, the, the school is dedicating the football field to my former college football coach, Bob Sullivan. So there are many players over the two decades he had coached coming back for the ceremony this weekend. And I heard you say to Jeff Johnson in, in the green room before we came on the air that uh, Coach Sullivan's first year was your freshman year at, That's right. at Carleton. That's right. All right. Uh-huh. Well, we're, we're glad to have you back in town. Well, thank you. And thanks for joining us this morning on National Security This Week. 
Uh, I want to start our show by covering a bit more of your career path. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I mean, it's just a, uh, as, a, as a career intel officer myself, I can tell the entire public, listening public, you've had an exceptionally uh, amazing career I've path. been very blessed. It's great <laughs> opportunities. Uh, what drew you to study international relations and Russian uh, at Carleton College? Uh, and, and maybe why why'd you pursue the NSA as your first position out, out of college? Well, it's kind of a, uh, you know, there was no master plan okay. you know, on, on to ultimately make my way to NSA, nor was there really any master plan about working in intelligence. I mean, I, I came to school planning to be a doctor at Carleton. I took a biology class and I realized I don't want to be a doctor anymore. <laughs> um, but I was always interested in world events, things happening around the world. Um, and then, and at Carleton, you have to have a proficiency in a foreign language. So I was studying German for my first two years and my German professor, um, called me in at the end of my sophomore year and said, you're not getting this German stuff. You need to try something else. I was really struggling. So I said, well, I'll try Russian. Why not? Not thinking that actually that's a more difficult language <laughs> right. than, than German. Yeah. But uh, really, my uh, Russian professor, Diane Imensignasheva, who's still here, she it, she just started at Carleton then as well. She really, um, I really took to her in terms of her passion for the language and so on. And so I, I did pretty well in Russian and uh, was thinking about different things. to so go to State Department. Do I you know look at CIA? Do I look at the Peace Corps? And one day at uh, my spring, at spring term, I was walking across campus and, you know, went into a, one of the buildings and saw on the bulletin board, a real bulletin board that actually pinned, had notes pinned to it. Um, and it said there was a test for this place called National Security Agency up at the University of Minnesota that weekend. So I had read about NSA before in, in Newsweek, and it sounded like a real high-tech organization. I'm not a tech guy, so I didn't think it was for me. But this test said, hey, just you know, give it a go. And, and so a buddy of mine and I drove up and took the test, and that was in the spring. And by September, I was working for NSA. So at that, if we think about it, 1983, spring of 1983, lots of things happening in the world at that time frame. Uh, the, the, the Soviet threat was still very real. Uh, President Reagan was in office, and uh, you know, he had sort of stated the goal here is to, is to win the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of heavy investment into the intelligence community and the military during that time frame. Uh, do, you, do you feel like uh, those things that were happening uh, politically here in the United States and, and recognizing the challenges that we faced with the Soviet Union at the time were, were some of the things that may have motivated you to, to pursue yeah, that? Sure. Uh, it was, um, you know, uh, back then it was, the, from a geopolitical standpoint, it was the United States and the Soviet Union, you know, the, the struggle against the big bear that right. uh, came out in all dimensions of society, frankly. So I thought it would be kind of cool to be part of that and play a role. And I tell people often that I went to NSA actually for two reasons initially. One, that um, I was going to get paid a little bit more than I was down on Capitol Hill, where I was working for a senator from Montana, which okay. is my home state. And I thought it would be kind of cool, you know, to, to work at a place like that. And ultimately, nearly 40 years later, you know, I was, wanting, I was getting paid a little bit more, you know, than I was initially. But it wasn't just kind of cool. It was a way cool place to work. And I know from my career that uh, NSA is one of those places where uh, intellectual prowess is uh, highly prized because it is such a technical uh, field, uh, National Security Agency. Uh, Did you feel like you were challenged every day? 
Oh, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it comes back to, <laughs> again, I'll go back when I tell people why I worked there first, you know, why I started and then why I worked for so long there. Um, one of the three big factors on why I stayed there for so long is that I learned something new every single day in that business. And uh, you, you think about it, N- NSA is a huge organization, globally distributed. Um, and you think about, you know, the world in which NSA operates is the international, the global telecommunications ecosystem mm-hmm. that's always changing. Right. You know, that layered, you know, underpinning the geopolitical environment, so which is always changing as well. So both the, the combination of the geopolitical, you know, um, environment and changes and the technologies, you know, that, that literally I would, and I'm not exaggerating, I would learn something new every single day. And one of the things I joked around as well, when I was here at Carleton, I thought about going to law school for a while too. And at NSA, and I meet with the lawyers and I say, I might as well have gone to law school, you <laughs> yeah. know, for all the issues that I had to work through about, you know, Fourth Amendment and, um, you know, all the constitutional protection and implications, you know, with U.S. intelligence and how they operate. So, uh, and you know, I thought about going to State Department for a while, too. Well, I might as well have gone to State Department for all the um, interactions I've had with foreign intelligence agencies and negotiating agreements and the likes like that. Yeah. So the, the breadth of opportunities to learn was was boundless, frankly. Yeah. I, I do want to follow up on a couple of those things that you just said, but I, I think it's probably— uh, best if we sort of start at the beginning here and okay. talk a little bit about NSA. Uh, the National Security Agency was established in 1952. Uh, it was a result of a number of signals intelligence consolidations that happened inside the Department of Defense after the National Security Act of 1947 was passed and created what we sort of understand today as the Department of Defense and CIA and, the, and the, more broadly the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, signal intelligence, uh, signals intelligence proved vital to American military successes in World War II. And as the Cold War began uh, in the Truman administration, it became clear the U.S. really needed a dedicated way to maintain and advance the full spectrum of signals intelligence uh, capabilities to protect American national security interests from the threats of the rapidly rising communist bloc that had formed after World War II. NSA is often referred to as simply just NSA, uh, but the organization is actually both the National Security Agency and the Central Security Service, so NSA slash CSS. Uh, can you explain what that means and how NSA is organized? Sure. So, as you say, NSA set up in 1952. Um, but even with the establishment of NSA, each of the branches uh, of the, the military had their own signals intelligence Ar- elements Army, Navy, doing their Air things. Force. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, about, I think it was 1972 or so, there was recognition that, hey, all these military branches doing their own signals intelligence wouldn't it make sense to consolidate and, and um, you know, not to, I, I, well, basically to make it more efficient, mm-hmm. have them connected in a better way, and thus was born the Central Security Service. So NSA, you know, technically you look at NSA slash CSS, and NSA is a joint civilian and military organization. So I've worked side by side for decades with folks from every branch of the military, to include Space Force most recently. Yeah. And so that consolidation, what you're really looking at is making sure that uh, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, Space Force, et cetera, all the different services consolidated under this uh, Central Security Services hat, uh, that the 
the, the cryptologic functions, so both code making and code breaking, Mm-hmm. fell under NSA, mm-hmm. as well as the signals intelligence collection aspects. Is that sort of what Yeah, happened? and, you know, we kind of munched a couple of things together there. Okay. So when, when I talk about, uh, well, as you say, NSA, the bumper sticker is code breakers, code makers. Okay. You know, so um, what that, the on the code breaking side, that's the foreign intelligence aspect of NSA's mission. That's the, the ones that, the, the part of NSA's mission that most people are familiar with. That's the, the interception, the, the stealing of secrets, the, you know, the, the electronic surveillance, uh, essentially, of foreign uh, individuals, foreign adversaries. Um, that's the co- code-breaking part of it. Now, the other part of NSA's mission, not as well known, it's becoming more uh, better known lately, is the code-making aspect. And that's really protecting national security systems. You know, for example, if you see the uh, president talking on a secure phone or whatever. It's the algorithms to protect that are written by NSA. Okay. So NSA has both a foreign intelligence and a defensive mission. And some would say, well, that's kind of wacky. You know, that, <laughs> that seems two totally uh, diametrically opposite missions. Why would they both be in the same organization? And my response to that is it makes perfect sense for them to be in the same organization because you know, to use an analogy, who better to protect your house from getting broken into than somebody that makes a living at breaking into houses yeah. and knows the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses and things like that so you can protect your own house from the the foreign versions of NSA. And that's essentially what we do. We are continually um, you know, seeking vulnerabilities in other foreign systems to obtain intelligence and armed with that knowledge that then informs what the U.S. and our allies can do to protect our own national uh, national security systems. So I have to imagine that uh, based on, on, on that framework that you just spelled out for us, a lot of mathematicians, a lot of computer science uh, majors going into work at the NSA. Yeah, that's, uh, yes, that, that's true. Um, but it's not just that. Okay. You know, as I say, NSA is a, a big global organization, and the breadth of skills that we need in the whole organization is, is huge. As you say, computer scientists, data scientists, mathematicians, and, and frankly, NSA, last I checked, was the number one employer of Ph.D. mathematicians in the United States. But aside from that, engineers of all types, you know, hardware, software, telecommunications, foreign language specialists here, hired on as a Russian language analyst. We hire other, you know, language analysts, Um, logisticians, what it takes to run a big organization, security folks, you know, finance experts. Um, And even, you know, circle back here to Carleton. There are a number of people, Carleton graduates that work at NSA. And if you look at the list of the majors, it's pretty diverse. Yeah, there's some computer science majors. There's also economics, history, philosophy, you know, foreign languages. Um, it's all of that. You know, we all bring it together to um, to carry out this you know complicated mission NSA has. I'm picturing in my head a, a, a Carleton College a happy hour every Friday night out there up there at Fort Meade, Maryland, and uh, <laughs> NSA headquarters. It's not that big. Okay. But <laughs> Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Mr. John Darby, who recently retired as Director of Operations for the National Security Agency. Our show is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can find out more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. 
All right, John Darby, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a really basic question, okay. uh, and, I, and I suspect that uh, a lot of our listeners are, are wondering this uh, same question as well. What, what exactly is signals intelligence? Okay. Uh, why is it important? How is it collected? You know, what you can say. Uh, and uh, why is it so – I mean, we spend a lot of money to go after this kind of uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about it. So signals intelligence, uh, the short form for that is SIGINT. Yeah. Um, and, and that's about the interception of electronic communications from foreign adversaries, things like phone conversations, email, but also radars and uh, signals from missiles, telemetry and so on. It's really electronic emanations that will exp- has information of interest to the United States to help us protect our national security interest. So that's kind of the the big picture. What SIGINT is, and, you know, and it's a foreign intelligence mission. There's a perception by some that uh, NSA is, uh, you know, somehow domestically focused, and, and, and we'll it, cover that in a little okay. while. Okay, <laughs> but it's as a foreign intelligence mission. That's uh, that's what SIGINT is. Now, how this all works, it all starts with a requirement, a requirement that comes from outside of NSA. Okay. It's generally can be from the president. It can be from an interagency vetted process that, you know, we've got a variety of requirements that departments and agencies need. Things like where the disposition of the Chinese military forces in the South China Sea is there, you know, the spy operating in the, in the Middle East on behalf of Iran, for example, or, you know, a whole variety of things. Those are requirements. Yeah. Those requirements then are um relayed to NSA and said, can we obtain that information to meet that requirement? You know, where's Osama bin Laden, for example, sure. what could be one. Yeah. So NSA has a variety of sensors. You know, it can be, most people think of the antennas pointing up in the sky. There's a variety of sensors to include that. You know, do you get the questions, NSA hack systems? Yes, we do. <laughs> we hack systems, right. foreign uh, uh, systems. So a variety of sensors that we have will collect the information um, and many times that information's unreadable to people, you know, so we have to do the signal processing. We have to, uh, break codes in some cases to get it to an intelligible form. Then we'll process that so there's foreign language processing, you know, there's a, fo- you know, here's a, a newsflash as a foreign intelligence agency. Not all the intercept is in English. <laughs> so, um, You've got the foreign language processing, then you've got to analyze it, what it means, and then um, provide that information to military commanders, policymakers, and actually make use of that information. So that's kind of the the sequence of it. What the goal, what we're trying to accomplish with our SIGINT mission is really um, to, to understand the plans and intentions of the adversaries, you know, Russia, for example. Sure. We want to understand the capabilities that they have to advance those plans and intentions. You know, what kind of uh, nuclear weapons do they have, their conventional forces, their cyber capabilities and all that. Um, Then plans and intentions, the capabilities, and provide indications and warning of how those adversaries intend to use those capabilities. So it's all three of those, plans and intentions, capabilities, Indications and warning, or INW, since I work for the government, and you've right. got to have an acronym for everything. <laughs> but you know, underneath that all, and and most importantly, is really the, what I'll call the operational support. 
you know, and the, the bumper sticker that I would say at, at work a lot was we're not in the business to produce libraries. We're in the business to support operations. We don't just to produce intelligence just as an academic exercise. We produce intelligence to support operations, whether it's short-term military operations, it can be law enforcement operations, it can be drug interdiction operations, it can be diplomatic operations, whatever it takes, you know, to, um, from an operational standpoint. So how we do that is it's not just simply produce the intelligence, it's develop relationships with those various operational communities, whether it's special forces, treasury, state department, FBI, you name it, understand what they're trying to achieve that helps us focus and prioritize what we do in the SIGINT system. And we're open, transparent with those operational communities about what we can and cannot do, which then could shape their plan to achieve that objective, sure. to make the best use of what the SIGINT system can provide. So that operational relationship is critical and hugely important. And frankly, it, you know, I think we'll probably talk about counterterrorism later. That's an area that we really pioneered, you know, in the years after 9-11 is that close operational relationship with, and at that case, the, the, the counter, counterterrorism operational communities. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you about that since you spent a good, good chunk of your career dealing with counterterrorism. Uh, a couple of quick follow-up questions on, uh, on what you just described. So signals intelligence, uh, two subsets, main subsets of, of SIGINT are communications intelligence and electronic intelligence. Is that a good way to frame it? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, comment, communications intelligence, ELINT, electronic intelligence. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good way to frame it. Yeah, for, for the that's for the fine. layman like that's me fine. who doesn't yeah. know anything about Sigan, yeah, uh, and then uh, you you did a great job of breaking down sort of how it's all collected. Can you give us a sense of the volume of uh, signals intelligence that's collected and processed every day? I mean, how, it's a huge. It's like vacuuming up every signal on the planet, pretty much, is what. I mean, all right. So not, that, maybe that's yeah. maybe that's a gross exaggeration, yeah. but I mean, it's a little more focused than that. But it's an uh, an incredible volume of information of data that's collected, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a huge amount of data, you know. And um, there is a um, the urban myth: you know, NSA vacuums up the world. That's not true. <laughs> you know, NSA does collect a lot of information, and I'm not sure how. Um, accurate this analogy how up-to-date this analogy is but about 10 years ago uh, there was an analogy that we would describe about if you think of all the world's communications you know graphically displayed as a, a basketball court for example the amount of communications that global communications nsa intercepts is equivalent to about a dime that's on that um, basketball court okay and even that of what is collected you know not all of it you know, we'll actually use. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So it's really, yes, it's a lot of information that, that NSA collects, but in the global scheme of things, it's really not that much. Yeah, but it's still a huge but it's, volume. But it's huge. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a huge volume, yeah. and there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And that's why, you know, technology is so important to help us make sense of the data that we do collect. And then then comes the, the code-breaking part and processing the signals mm -hmm. uh and and you were uh head of if, if i have this correctly if i remember correctly you said uh, your intro you were the head of sigint analysis yes so what does that mean so you get all this information what do you do with it yeah so um yeah that that was 
functionally at NSA, there's kind of, you know, four big functions. One is um, collection, you know, collection of signals. Another is cryptanalysis. That's breaking the codes. Another is what we call discovery, which is kind of looking forward, what's coming next. How do we, you know, um, actually put in place the right kind of processes and capabilities to get the right kind of data to the analysts, the SIGINT analysts. And then there's analysis. And that was uh, what I was chief of, of SIGINT analysis. So all that data comes to an office, let's say, that's set up for Russia, a Russia office. And the information that we collect on Russian nuclear weapons, Russia forces, Russia cyber activities, all that, um, that information is evaluated by analysts and then put in a form that can be to meet the requirement that uh, that the, the, a customer has asked for or a partner has asked for. Okay. Um, in many ways, I mean, I like to use an analogy about Intel is much like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, but it's a jigsaw puzzle with a twist. And <laughs> this particular jigsaw puzzle, you may have a couple of pieces on the coffee table in front of you. Some are under the table. The dog ate some, some are on the other <laughs> side of the street, some are on the other side of the town, some are at the bottom of the lake, some are on the other side of the world, and some don't exist. All right. And your job is to find as many of those pieces as you can and put them together to tell the story about what's going on. And you don't have a box top to tell you how it fits together. All right. So that's the job of an analyst is really you know gather as many of those pieces as you can and then apply your expert analytic you know expertise on the target that you're working to inform a military commander policymaker here's what is going on okay uh john derby i want to i want to move over to uh the counterterrorism subject uh we'll talk about that for a few minutes and then we have to take a, a, a brief uh commercial break i noted in your bio that uh, you spent a great deal of time focused on sigint operations in support of counterterrorism uh after september 11th 2001 uh can you tell us a little bit about how critical SIGINT has been uh, to the CT mission since the horrors of, of that day, 9-11? Uh, and could the United States and our allies have succeeded in stopping uh, a, you know, additional attacks or finding the terrorists that are out there in the world? We've, we've been fairly successful in those counterterrorism operations. If SIGINT wasn't such a well-funded intel collection capability? Yeah, well, first of all, our counterterrorism operations are really a—, a whole of government activity and frankly whole of IC yeah. um, intelligence community um, and almost every counterterrorism operation that has been or every terrorist plan that has been disrupted it's generally been multiple players across the intelligence community providing a piece of that jigsaw puzzle to okay. say here's what's going on now I would uh, venture to say and and you know, as an NSA or I may sound biased to say, and SIGINT has been hugely, you know, has been the predominant player in terms of um, uncovering terrorist plots, plans and intentions, capabilities, I and W, things like that. Um, but it, it's it's still done in partnership with various folks, whether it's FBI or uh, CIA or the military, for example. Um, and the overwhelming majority of intelligence that would make its way to the president, for example, in counterterrorism came from SIGINT. Okay. Um, and there's another statement made by the head of uh, Special Forces, a Joint Special Operations Command, 
he basically said, I don't send my guys out if I don't have SIGINT alongside. That so, important. Uh, it's huge, hugely important. Um, and, and, you know, has, has, you know, made a tangible difference in, in uh, saving people's lives. So I, I have to think, uh, as we've seen sort of this major transition that has taken place uh, from, you know, we were so heavily focused on counterterrorism for so long. Uh, we've transitioned uh, the U.S. intelligence community from focusing so heavily on those counterterrorism threats. We, we still do it, obviously. Uh, but we're now clearly in a global competition uh, between the liberal democracies and the rising uh, authoritarian nations. Uh, and obviously, we do not want the authoritarian nations to win in this struggle so that they get to sort of write the rules for how the new world order will function. Uh, in many ways, we're sort of back to needing a, a U.S. intelligence community that can manage the strategic challenges we faced during the Cold War when you entered service at mm-hmm. NSA. Uh, but with dealing with all the rapidly advancing technologies in our world today, uh, how has SIGINT adapted to this new reality we face with China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, other other nations that are sort of putting us uh, uh, in a challenging position mm-hmm. to, uh, to to continue to be the world leader? Yeah, so you you hit on the the big strategic issue now across all the intelligence community. If you look at the the latest national security strategy, national defense strategy, it really points to. We're in an era of strategic competition. Yeah. It's no longer terrorism is not the number one national security priority that it was for nearly 20 years. Yeah. I mean, there was no doubt you talk to anybody across the intelligence community. It was stopping a terrorist attack, preventing another catastrophic attack like 9-11. It, yeah. it was the big kahuna. All The entire system was optimized for that as a priority. So in the meantime, while the U.S. was focused on counterterrorism, China and Russia still plugging along, advancing their capabilities and so on. While doesn't mean that the U.S. didn't watch them. We did, but it, they weren't the top priority. But there's a recognition that from a strategic standpoint, we needed to shift. You know, that um, we needed to put, you know, and it clear, it's clear now the number one priority that we have is China. You know, and Russia is number two. It's not number one, but it, it's still uh, a, a key priority. Terrorism is still important. Iran and North Korea, also important, but number one clearly is China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things when I was working counterterrorism, I would say, you know, it's really hard, you know, work counterterrorism. It's really hard to stop every potential attack when a terrorist just has to, you know, have a, you know, semi success, you know, to, to have in their minds see as a huge success. And it's very difficult to find one person on the face of the earth who doesn't want to be found. Osama bin Laden, for yeah. example. Yeah. Um, but if you sit back and think about it, the counterterrorism mission was frankly pretty simple at its core. Stop terrorist attacks, catch terrorists. And it's generally, generally speaking, and focused in one part of the world. Compare that with China today. China, you know, publicly stated intent to be a global economic superpower, a military two million strong. You know, thousands upon thousands of cyber warriors um, that you've got to and, you know, a developer of advanced technologies and more importantly, not just developing those technologies, but proliferating and integrating those technologies into the global economy. That's it dwarfs counterterrorism in terms of scale and scope and complexity to understand the threats you know, directed toward the United States and our allies from that range of activities that China has. So what do we do about that? You know, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, 
but we we've started shifting a few years ago you know, in terms of you know, our technologies our sensors our capabilities our analytics our hiring um, our policies you know all of that so that we have a system that's optimized for china first and foremost and then the other targets kind of ride on the backs of an architecture that's designed for that as opposed to counterterrorism. okay yeah uh, we have to take just a, a brief uh a break okay National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th through the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. So, uh, John, we just finished talking a little bit about sort of the challenges on that uh, on the global scale with this uh, strategic challenges that we have uh, with other nations around the world. Uh, you mentioned earlier that NSA is a joint civilian-military organization. Uh, as part of the Defense Department, NSA is also a combat support agency. You mentioned that a little bit earlier. What, what exactly does that mean in the context of combat support agency? It basically means when we have troops in harm's way, that's you know, NSA's job to protect them and provide that support. Um, best exemplified in recent years with Iraq and Afghanistan you know, NSA deployed thousands of personnel to Iraq and Afghanistan, both civilian and military. I mean, I went to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times myself um, and working side by side with the uh, combat troops to help them carry out their mission and also protect them. Okay. You know, because, you know, other forces would try to attack our folks that were on the ground there. So um, it, it's that that's what it means you know the the combat support role that we have and as i mentioned the head of jsoc saying i don't send my guys out without nsa that's combat combat support yeah uh, that's pretty specific that, that <laughs> tells me that military leaders really recognize the importance of what nsa does in mm -hmm. support of their operations uh, i i mentioned in my introduction that you were director of operations for nsa uh the director of nsa uh the person in charge is also dual-hatted as the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, just a little trivia point, by the way, for our listeners. Right now, the commander of U.S. Cyber Command and director of NSA CSS is a Minnesota native, uh, U.S. Army General Paul Nakasone, who happens to hail from White Bear Lake and is a St. John's University graduate. Uh, John Darby, can you talk about the relationship between the SIGINT missions at NSA and the operational cyber missions, both offensive and defensive, carried out at Cyber Command? Yeah, I'll, um, this, I think, is one of the most fascinating aspects of what uh, General Nakasone has on his plate. He's both the director of NSA CSS and the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, one of our you know combatant commands. Yeah, It's a huge responsibility for one person. It is, it is. And it can be very confusing to folks who don't live this about with one person leading both NSA and Cyber Command. A lot of people think, well— effectively NSA and Cyber Command are one organization, and that's not true. Okay. Two separate organizations. We happen to be co-located in some places, but um, 
yeah, the, the word we use is we, we operate in the same battle space. You know, NSA's job, steal secrets, operate in the cybersphere, find vulnerabilities, you know, uh, obtain the secrets to answer the intelligence questions. Um, and, and Cyber Command's mission from a what we call an offensive or cyber effects mission is to operate in that same space to, you know, deny, disrupt you know, other, you know, adversaries' capabilities, much like... General Oxoni has publicly stated Cyber Command has done that, you know, tar- targeting Russia in the context of Russia-Ukraine and yeah. made things more difficult for Russia. That's their job. Um, so we work very closely with Cyber Command. Um, if we find things, you know, in our foreign intelligence mission that we think would be useful for Cyber Command, we will let Cyber Command know. As Cyber Command is planning operations. They'll work with NSA to say, hey, here's what we plan to do. It gets back to this operational relationship. And NSA, at, at some level, you know, hopefully at a working level, say, hey, do you realize that if you do this, that's going to blow this source you know, for longer-term gain? So there's an ongoing dialogue there. And, yeah, there is some tension sometimes. Yeah, um, and that's why you've got one person dual-hatted with both organizations so he can you know, quickly adjudicate any conflicts that come to a head between Cyber Command and NSA. Now, th- that's kind of the, the reason why he's dual-hatted there. He's actually exercised that role to set up some joint Cyber Command-NSA oper- uh, organizations focused on some key issues, much like, you know, election security. Mm-hmm. You know, when he came into the position in 2018, he quickly established a we called a, a Russia small group, really focused on protecting the 2018 elections from any undue Russian influence. And Cyber Command and NSA were working together with our respective authorities and missions to help protect those elections. We did it in 2020. We've got a, a similar organization set up in 2022 as well. Um, so, and, and the same thing with Russia, Ukraine, we kind of combined and, and we're working really closely together almost as a, a task force to get after things. So when you were serving in your last assignment at NSA as director of operations, since NSA is a combat support agency, you could say that you were doing combat support agency support for uh, Cyber Command as a combatant command. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we've touched a bit on the world of cybersecurity now. Uh, I've been teaching an overview course at the at Carleton College for a number of years. That course is called the U.S. Intelligence Community. Uh, and a question I get all the time from students, uh, and you can imagine this since you, you yourself are a Carleton grad, uh, carry very deeply about uh, civil rights, about privacy issues, things like that. Uh, but the question I get from the students all the time is whether or not their activity on the Internet or when they're on their cell phones is actually private. Or is the U.S. government continuously spying on them through the capabilities that are resident at NSA? I think it's probably going to be uh, informative for our listeners if you could explain what the FISA court is through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act when that was established in 78, uh, how that process works to authorize electronic surveillance using NSA's capabilities, maybe other capabilities, maybe you don't want to talk about all those capabilities, and what role NSA actually plays in supporting federal law enforcement in this area. Okay. so It's, there's it's a, a complex question. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah, let's I uh, I, kind let's of break, unpack it. Break it down bit by bit. Yep. So start at its core. NSA is a foreign intelligence agency. We are focused overseas. We are not about domestic intelligence. That is FBI's job. So that you know, that's point one. 
we're focused overseas now and the overwhelming majority of what we do is well i mean that's what we do <laughs> foreign intelligence yep. <coughs> excuse me um and that's authorized by executive order for us to do that now we do have that you talked about the fisa court foreign intelligence surveillance um, act yep. and there's a court that oversees how that act is being implemented the the, the FISA court, we'll call it. Um, that court can issue warrants, and that's a court you know, with a federal judge that's uh, you know made up of federal judges named by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and they can approve warrants for the intelligence community, intelligence community to perform electronic surveillance on agents of foreign powers you know, in the United States that are communicating with uh, foreign powers outside of the United States. So that's really to deal with if there's spies, you know, in the United States, for example. Um, there is a section of the FISA Act that was approved, um, you know, in the mid-2000s or so, Section 702. Now, um, you may see more about this in the press in the coming years because this uh, – this section is due to sunset or expire at the end of 2023. Okay. But what 702 authorizes is for the the government to, well, let's back, let's play out a scenario. So you've got, you know, Iranian government person talking to, I don't know, I'll make this up, a, a Pakistani individual. Well, they happen to be, you know, they're communicating about something that's of interest to the United States, the Iranian nuclear program, for example. Well, those folks may be communicating on a service that's a U.S. service, okay. a U.S. communications provider, for example. All right. So what the 702 would allow the government to do is go to that communications provider, serve a warrant, and say, I want all the communications from this Iranian person. You know, so we don't have to deploy a sensor to Iran. We don't have to put people's lives at risk. And um, you can actually just go straight to the U.S. provider and get it. Okay. So that's what 702. It's very efficient. It's very, uh, you know, safe. Um, now, one of the concerns is, and, and there are, you know, anytime we're focused overseas, whether it's through 702 or any other, you know, activities that we have, there's a chance we'll collect U.S. person communications. You know, if let's say that same Iranian person is talking to an American. Yeah. Well, we're targeting that American, that Iranian yeah. person. Well, we happen to get the other end of the conversation. So we do have procedures in place. They're called minimization procedures that if we're, you know, it comes back to the analytic, you know, the analyst, as the analyst is looking at this and they're writing the intelligence to share, they emphasize, they put the, they talk about the foreign intelligence aspect of the communication and minimize the U.S. end if it has you know nothing of a foreign intelligence value. And we won't even put the U.S. person's name or identity in the report. And that's just masked. You know, you heard the term masking and sure. unmasking. Yeah. U.S. you know IDN one or U.S. person two, for example. So the reader of the intelligence report won't even know who that is. Yeah. But what they see is the foreign intelligence aspect of that conversation. So the um, minimization procedures are all approved by the court as well. Um, 
And there's, I, I get it. There's con, the concerns people have about what NSA can do. And I, I'd, I'd be lying if say NSA, it, NSA is a very powerful capability. Um, we take that very seriously. When I talk about the two missions of NSA, the foreign intelligence and cybersecurity, there's a third mission in there as well that's not as well publicized, but it is within NSA, and that's compliance mm-hmm. and protection of privacy and civil liberties. That is baked into the DNA of the people that work at NSA. Anybody that works with the what we call the raw traffic, they, they know, yeah, and the, they know the rules. They're tested on the rules. I'm tested on the rules. Now, the direct General Noxoni is tested. This is an every-year thing. This yeah. is not a rubber-stamp test. You've got to go through and make sure you understand all the rules. Now, there's multiple oversight mechanisms to make sure we're following the right rules, both internal to NSA and external. Within NSA, you've got the Inspector General. You've got a, a robust compliance office You know, at multiple levels without NSA. You've got the Office of the General Counsel. We've got a privacy and civil liberties transparency office, all, and that's all within NSA. Mm-hmm. Outside of NSA, you've got oversight within the executive branch, Department of Justice, for example. You've got, we mentioned the FISA court. We've got uh, congressional oversight, you know, oversight committees that they can see anything and everything that we do. Um, so we get checked you know, repeatedly yeah. multiple levels and not to mention dod and the office of the director oh, yeah. of national intelligence yeah 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 <laughs> that's right I, I didn't whoops i missed them too um but all those things they're um i mean that's the way the system's set up and that's on purpose i mean having testified to congress many times sometimes those are uncomfortable <laughs> conversations but that's the way the system is set up and actually i'll share one little uh story that really a pretty powerful story i thought i was part of a joint team after the 2009 Detroit uh, underwear bomber attack down before the Senate intelligence community. And I was there with my colleague from CIA and FBI and ODNI, and we were just getting hammered by multiple senators. How did you miss this? How could you not see it? Um, and it was very uncomfortable, you know, but that's the way they are. And then one Senator, it came to his turn to talk and he said, Hey, I know, this is uncomfortable for for you all. You've got you know great Americans doing their damnedest to make sure this doesn't happen, um, and this is uncomfortable for us. Yes, but this is the way the system is set up. You know that we need to ask questions. You know, and it's not like we're criticizing anybody. We're trying to learn so we can make things better going forward. That changed the whole tenor of the whole you know hearing from that point to hey, let's find a way to better do this instead of find a screwdriver to nail it through you know right people's hearts and say you guys really hosed messed up yeah um but anyway the the and so the the point being multiple oversight mechanisms um and they're certainly not rubber stamps you know as i say the personal experience testifying on the hill personal experience testifying before the fisa court they're they're asking the right kind of questions and that's that's our job so you really did kind of become a lawyer to a certain extent uh, to be, to do this job. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, to some extent, he kind of did. You know, at one point, I got interviewed at one point, um, and actually it's for 60 Minutes that, you know, my part hit the cutting room floor, but the <laughs> 60 Minutes interviewer was asking at one point, said, all these oversight procedures you have, doesn't that get frustrating and slow you down from really doing the job that you're hired to do? And 
I said, yeah, I'd be lying if I say it didn't get, it wasn't frustrating sometimes, but you got to st- step back and think that's the way our society is set up. Right. Yeah. You know I mean, that's what makes us different from China or Russia and how we do, you know, intelligence operations. And that's okay. Yeah. If it's more difficult, if it's more painful and in the name of supporting the values that, you know, why this country's set up and how we're intended to operate, that's a price I'm more than willing to pay. And anybody at NSA or across the intelligence community is more than willing to pay. Yeah, I have this discussion with my students in that course all the time uh, where, you know, trying to get them to understand that it's a constant struggle between uh, the desire of everybody in America to, to live in a free and open society, mm-hmm. uh, but yet still have security. Right. So we can sleep safely at night. And yeah. it's a it's a tremendous struggle uh, for our listeners. You're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is, jo- is Mr. John Darby, who recently retired as director of operations for the National Security Agency. We're sponsored by the Cider- Cybersecurity Summit. And you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, John, we have about uh, 12 minutes or so left uh, this morning. Uh, where do you see the linkages going between signals intelligence, cyber operations, the power of machine learning, uh, maybe eventually some degree of artificial intelligence. That's what the machine learning is uh, angling towards. How, how will these advancing technologies impact this highly technical aspect of the U.S. intelligence community's missions, this SIGINT and cyber mission? <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, actually, it, it, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the technologies are always changing and yeah. advancing. And there's a whole realm of technology, emerging technologies that are going to pose a challenge to how, you know, how NSA does its business, how the intelligence community does its business. Um, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, huge, you know, and we are investing in that, and we're using that to, to machine learning now to um, help us gain efficiencies in how we do our job. Does that help uh, with well. processing all the signals? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, but there's other technologies, you know, the, you know, encryption, ubiquitous encryption, the Internet of Things, you know, making sure, every, you know, everything from your dumpster to your, um, you know, the, the outside the restaurant tied to the streetlights to, you know, all that interconnection. That's, you know, advancing technologies, making things more uh, difficult. The commercialization of space, you know, which is, you know, a new realm, essentially, you know, the critical to not only military operations but our way of life you know if you can't protect space for example sure um you know what about cybersecurity that in many cases now operates at human speed you know but i can see in a place you know artificial where i can see a future in which we're going to be almost you know a cyber ai world you know what i mean by that is if there's some malware directed toward a victim, you know, loaded with artificial, you know, intelligence algorithms, hits a defense, recognizes that defense is in place, revectors the attack somewhere else. Well, that defender may be loaded with AI as well, and say, if I get an attacker hit, you know, this vector, and they shift, well, I'm going to be able to shift too and follow that person, that uh, that actor. So that's it's machine speed. You know, way beyond inform- anything humans can make a decision. Exactly, about. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, in you know, split seconds. Um, and there's some of that now, but not you know, the degree that I think we probably could see in the future. But back to the point is, you know, artificial intelligence going to be hugely impactful in the future. Um, you know, across the IC, we're investing in that to 
not only do our jobs better, but understand how adversaries are using it, you know, to advance their objectives and how we can counter and, and, and exploit that. I've heard a couple of terms. You may or may not be able to sort of explain these things to us, but uh, quantum computing, quantum encryption, mm-hmm. uh, are these things that NSA is deeply concerned about uh, impacting the mission? Well, I mean, uh, uh, quantum science is you know, obviously an, an advancing field and has all kinds of implications um, but that has national security implications. Okay. Uh, we know that autonomous vehicles are coming on in the in the future. Should I be afraid to buy an autonomous vehicle because it might get hacked by somebody in the future? <laughs> Anything with a computer is potential to get hacked. Okay. And I'll just put in a plug. Anybody, if you have any data on any network, do the patching do yeah. the simple stuff i mean virtually 80 to 90 percent of all the hacks that are taking place you know if you peel it back it's because somebody did something stupid either okay. didn't keep their network defend their you know their their network patched up to date clicked on a link that somebody sent with a phishing email it's just stupid stuff you know people are lazy people will take the shortcuts and it's those shortcuts who will often get you in trouble Okay. There are a couple of things that I that I didn't put on my list that I want to maybe hit 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 you with today. See see what you're willing to talk about. Okay. Uh, Stuxnet. So that's been in the news. It was covered on 60 Minutes. A number of other things. Uh, you were just talking about you know take advantage of those uh, patches that that take place. As I understood it, Stuxnet took advantage of a number of what we call zero day vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, zero day vulnerability, as I understand it, is it's been zero days since somebody discovered that that, that was a vulnerability in a software yep. operating system. Uh, Stux, how, how much did Stuxnet impact global understanding of the importance of cybersecurity and cyber operations? Well, I'm not going to comment on Stuxnet per se. Yeah. Uh, I will say that. Uh, yeah, it's not any um, cyber intrusion. You know, I'm looking at Colonial Pipeline, for yeah, example. It's a good one. Or uh, Not Petya, you know, which yeah. is uh, something a couple of years ago. Um, it brings to the forefront the risks that entities have, companies, individuals, by not protecting their data, you know, or not having the right security cybersecurity mechanisms in place, defenses in place. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is you've got to, you know, the the term we use now is zero trust, which is if you're a network owner, you've got to, you can't trust anybody. You (laughs) can't, well, I mean, and what I mean by many in the past, the, the core of any cyber defenses was about protect at the boundary. Well, you've got to assume somebody's going to get past that boundary somehow. So you've got to have defenses within that network. You know, uh, with the, looking for within the network itself, and you've got to have defenses on your host. Uh, you know, whether it's your phone, whether it's your laptop, or whatever. So, it's a multi-layer defense mechanism you have to have in place. And the, you know, the the high-profile cyber incidents you've seen around the world, many in most cases, because those weren't in place. Okay, which leads me to the second question that I want to ask you. We were talking about this a little bit uh, in, in the green room. Uh, you, you can do an awful lot uh, on the cyber side, on the computer programming side, to, to, to wall off those defenses, create the firewalls that are needed to protect your systems. But the biggest vulnerability is always the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the zero trust environment probably extends to taking a look at you know everybody that's on the system all the time, making sure that they're secure. And a great example of that where that may have fallen down a little bit is Edward Snowden. 
the newest Russian citizen in, in the Russian Republic. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the challenges that uh, the NSA and the well, Intel think community one, faces from yeah, those? Well, I think uh, one of the things is you've got to be, you know, when I'm talking you know, big system, you know, you, you've, you've got to be, be careful from within yeah. as well. And uh, you've got to be sensitive to the insider threat. I mean, you've got within NSA and many across the intelligence community, you've got people with access to some of the most sensitive secrets the United States has. You know, and, you know, there's an extensive vetting process to be authorized access to that. But we have seen, you know, some one bad apple, you know, can, you know, take those secrets and do something with them and expose them. And it's not just the Edward Snowden situation, but there's been others as well. Um, So how do you protect against that? Um, So we've certainly bolstered up our, our defenses in that regard over the last, you know, 10 years or so. And I, as I understand it, at the office of the director of national intelligence, there's the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, mm-hmm. uh, and one of their big things is the insider threat uh, mm-hmm. initiative. So they're actually looking at that across the entire U.S. intelligence community. Yep. Uh, John Darby, we're closing in. we got about three or four minutes left. I always like to give my guests the last word before we close out the show. Uh, rather than ending on a negative note, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about NSA. Anything we haven't covered today that you think is really important for people to know and understand about uh, about NSA? Uh, th- sir, the floor is yours. I, th- I think uh, it's important for folks. People hear the term NSA and they think this big amorphous, you know, the 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 big spy you know agency. But you know, you drill down that term NSA, it's people. It's people that, you know, make up NSA. It's people, it's ordinary Americans doing, you know, the folks you see going to school, going to Carleton, going to, you know, coaching their kids' teams, and just normal, everyday Americans. Um, And it's really been an honor for me to work with those folks over the last 40 years. I mean, that's they're great people working there, great people that want to do the right thing, that want to make a difference. Um, There's... You know, I've asked many a person over the years, say, I, I need you to work this weekend. I need you to work this holiday. I need you to go to Afghanistan. And, and um, nobody's ever complained to me, at least to my face, you know, <laughs> uh, about that. Um, but it really, you know, comes down when people ask why I've worked at NSA for so long. You know, say, I mentioned the one about the intellectual challenge, learning something new every day. Um, you know, one is the opportunity to be part of something bigger than myself that makes such a difference every single day. And that's I've been blessed enough over the course of my career to be in positions where I've seen that up close and personal. I, I've seen you know, you know, generals come to NSA and say, you realize you saved hundreds of people's lives today by doing this. Or I've seen somebody you know, in a senior diplomatic position say, do you realize you changed history with what you provided us you know, to help with this particular negotiation? Or seeing uh, a terrorist wrapped up because of you know, some information that the NSA provided. So being part of something like that, and, and most recently with Russia-Ukraine, yeah. you know, being part of you know, a you know, unbelievably impactful intelligence story and warning you know, yeah. to the world about what was coming. Being yeah. part of that was pretty special, too, to help make a difference and, and help the Ukrainians prepare and defend themselves and fight off what was expected on the Russians' part to be a lightning strike and decapitate Ukraine and take it over, you know, pretty quickly. Um, so 
the opportunity to be something, be part of something bigger than myself that has such a difference is kind of cool. The intellectual challenge and the third are, are the people of NSA, smart people, dedicated people, um, there for the right reasons, want to do the right thing. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of uh, today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, John Darby, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us to better understand one of the most secretive intelligence agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, the National Security Agency. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Uh, enjoy your visit while you're here in town. All right. I will. Uh, for our uh, audience, just one more reminder. Uh, I mentioned at the start of the show about the faculty panel coming up at uh, Carleton College on Thursday, October 27th from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Hassenstab Hall. It's a panel on autocracy versus democracy, which we touched on a little bit on our show today, uh, John Darby. Uh, threats to democracy in Myanmar, Ukraine, and the United States with a panel of professors from Carleton College Department of Political Science. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington.